Welcome to Canuck Central. Satyar Shah with Israel Fair here on Sportsnet 650 and the Sportsnet family. I was going to say radio network, but that's a uh, post-game thing. See, I'm just so used to doing the post-game show. I'm just still in the post-game mode from last night, Izzy. Uh, Dan Riccio away this week. We'll be back again on Friday. But Izzy's in. He'll be in today and as well tomorrow. And Canuck Central is presented to you by your local Grip Auto and Tire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. We have a loaded show. Uh, Sam Cosentino is dropping by at 5 to talk some prospects and everything else with the NHL. Harmon Dial is coming up at 4.30 from The Athletic to discuss your Vancouver Canucks. And John Garrett Cheech is coming in at 6 for more Canucks talk here on Canucks Central. And, you know, we'll delve into uh, what happened against the Blues and the Canucks' lot in life now, really being <laughs> outside the playoff picture. Uh, but that'll kind of come, come up a bit later uh, as the discussion goes. But today, really, uh, the topic of conversation around the Vancouver Canucks centered around the head coach, Bruce Boudreau, today, Izzy. He was asked uh, if he wants to come back, and he said, I haven't been told anything. And he essentially will play the clip coming up in a couple minutes. But... He essentially said he wants to be here, but also made it clear that it's also very much an unknown when it comes to his future in Vancouver. Yeah, last night's game, uh, Wednesday night's game against the Blues, for a lot of reasons, felt like kind of, okay, this this pursuit of the playoffs is pretty much done. But that doesn't mean, uh, as you and I talked about on Tuesday's show, that there's uh, not much to to discuss about uh, the future of this team and, and those games. And now like, I don't think that whatever Bruce Boudreau does over the course of uh, the next month will dictate his future as coach. Yeah. It's more about looking at the, the three, the three plus months now that, uh, that he's been coach of, of the Canucks and analyzing you know, really what we have seen. And uh, in, in now with some, a little bit more clarity that the playoff conversation for all intents and purposes is over um, there is that that space for us to to explore, and it's it's an interesting yeah. one, man. Because look, he came in, the team was about as low and not as low in the standings as it's ever been, but it felt like in in the fan base, in the market, um, confidence in the team was just incredibly low. Excitement about the team yeah. was low, and that he was able to turn that around oh, yeah. really quickly. I mean, yes, new coach bump, maybe, uh, maybe just some regression to the mean in general, like the roster was better than they had played, but to come into that situation where it was so dire, everybody was so down and there were people in the market saying, you know, to keep Travis green in this job is doing a disservice to him on a professional level. Right? Like, yes, that's how bad things got. That's what people like when, you know, it's bad when it gets to the point where it's like, you know what? It's better to fire somebody than let them keep their job as an NHL head coach. That's that, like, that put him out of his vibe, misery. Man. Just yeah. put him out of his misery. That was yeah. the vibe. And so Boudreaux comes in under those circumstances. That's, you know, I think a big plus for him in his favor uh, to, to extend this. But I think we're going to learn a lot about what this management group yeah. wants uh, in a coach and in the direction of this team. And I do believe that they will be able to evaluate that independently from some of this this shine that that's been there and that, look i've enjoyed it a ton yeah. i think it's been fun i love the bruce there it is stuff uh being in the rink and hearing that i i don't remember a time uh you know in recent memory where you could feel that kind of positive exuberance in in the stands where people yeah. are actually excited to watch the canucks 
and excited to like to take part in in the experience and yeah you know he he's obviously a fun loving guy and easy to root for but that that is just part of the conversation and he's um he's a professional coach he's been a professional coach for a long time he knows the game and this was um in a lot of ways his his quote today is the start of a deeper version of the conversation that we've had a little bit you know what's his future how much yeah. Are the Canucks going to want to commit to him, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, this is the, the start in earnest, I think, of, of having that conversation. Mm-hmm. And he's he's now talked about it publicly. Well, you're right about whatever decision gets made here is going to tell us mostly about where management is at as far as what the vision is for this team, how they envision it being coached, and the type of coach they want to have here and how that ultimately works. And, you know, I, it's been a couple months now I've been mentioning, hey, don't just assume – that Boudreaux is necessarily coming back. I like Boudreaux. I want Boudreaux. If I, had, if I had a choice, my choice would be to bring Boudreaux back. But I get the impression that there is still a lot of evaluation going on and long-term thinking about what the coach of Vancouver, who that should be, and what that looks like. And that may or may not actually include Bruce Boudreaux. And we'll see how that goes. But as far as what Boudreaux said today when he met with the media, here is Bruce Boudreaux addressing the question about his contract status. I, I think, uh, I've, you know, I think I've done an okay job, and um, it's a tough question. I mean, uh, I want to coach forever, so and I really like Vancouver, so I guess that sort of answers the question. That's Bruce Boudreaux on his contract situation. Obviously, he wants to keep coaching, and he likes it in Vancouver, and he essentially says he wants to be here. The question is what the team decides to do with him next season and beyond that. And even if he comes back next year, it's only on a one-year basis. And one way or another, you're not entering next year with Boudreaux on a one-year deal. You're not entering next season with that only being the certainty, right? Like, what this organization is going to do, I believe, is make a decision this offseason, if he's our guy, he gets a contract extension. Like we're sure. talking about a couple of years or whatever. But if he's not, this is a time for you to move on. I want Boudreau to stay. That would be my choice because I've made this clear a number of different times. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find good coaches to begin with. Coaching lifespans in the NHL are becoming shorter and shorter as time goes on. Of course, you love to have a guy for a long period of time. But if that's your goal going into things, that might very much be putting the cart ahead of the horse, right? What guarantees do you have that whoever you hire is going to last two to three years, let alone four, five, six, seven, eight years, or whatever that the case may be? Usually, it's a three or four year window with most most coaches. So I'm all for bringing Boudreaux back and investing for another couple of years with him as a, as as the bench boss here, especially with the culture he's building and he's building a program. He knows how to coach a program, right, and instill um, standards as far as what his expectations right. are, right, yep. and how things get run and how we play and, and building an identity. And I think those are hard things to do as a coach and I think him being able to establish those things is an important thing playing into his favor or should play in his favor in coming back but if you have a different vision about how this team should play how they should be coached and what it's going to look like long term and how you want to get through to today's NHL player however that may be because we don't know as far as what management is thinking Mm -hmm. the time to make that change though would be this offseason yeah you want to be you want to get ahead of it and it's not a situation where um, look, I think for a lot of reasons, it made a ton of sense that he was the guy to come in at that time. And it was very easy to make the argument. Uh, he's done this before. Look at the bounces the teams have had. 
uh, after he's taken over as coach. Uh, look at the offensive players that he's coached in the past and the way that they've performed with him behind the bench. That doesn't mean that this management group that's now been filled out since Jim Rutherford took over is going to believe that he is the one, the, the coach that they want to commit to long-term. And as you said, Sat, it doesn't make any sense to go into next season when you're trying to reset this program with, well, we like Bruce Boudreaux. We know that he brings a lot uh, to the table as a head coach in the NHL, but we're not sure about committing to him beyond next season. So that's why you have to ask these questions now. They have to be asking themselves that question right now because there are these are the sorts of things that get talked about um, in the NHL circles. Other front offices, agents, players, they'll look at Vancouver. They'll want to know, is the coach someone that's going to have staying power? Yeah. If I'm going to sign with this team, if I'm going to get traded to this team, am I going to be happy about it because I know that the coach is there for the long haul? You know, people might have thought that about Travis Green after he got his mm-hmm. extension, but when your team is that bad, things things start to change. If the Canucks play anything like they have under Bruce Boudreaux, you wouldn't. You're you're not going to be in danger of getting fired as yeah. the coach of that team unless something you know out of the ordinary happens. Uh, but that has nothing to do with the play on the ice. Um, and we've been given no reason to believe that Bruce Boudreaux would be in that kind of position. So you feel, okay, there's a veteran head coach. He's been, um, he's had a lot of success in this league. He's had some nice success here. This is what we still don't know about this management group. Yeah. We, we've got, you know, you can read the tea leaves. You can speculate a little bit. Uh, there's some, some of that speculation is informed about the roster that they'd like to build, uh, the way that they'd like to play, uh, the kind of program that they want to mm-hmm. build. I think there's a lot of arguments to make that Bruce Boudreau, uh, at least in, in, the, in the beginning, I mean, he's, he is an older coach, but he has said that he has no plans to retire anytime soon. You know, he's a guy yeah. that he didn't become an NHL head coach until later in, in life, right? When you're, you're mm-hmm. talking about him taking over uh, the Washington Capitals, uh, he still, I think, would love to coach for a number of years. And if you're the Canucks, you have to, you have to weigh that too. What, yeah. what kind of commitment are you making there? And what what kind of team are you building with the players that are already here, the players that we know are going to be a big part of the future? Yeah, and ultimately that's going to be the decision. I think the basis of the decision that gets made on Bruce Boudreaux, but I think on Boudreaux himself, it's interesting to kind of figure gauge what his value is around the league as a head coach. Let's say that it's not Vancouver next year. Has he done well enough this year that another team – could easily hire him this offseason like could there be a situation where it's like listen bruce we're not sure it's going to work here but toronto lost in the first round again sheldon keith is out right does it make sense for him to go there potentially like if it's not vancouver the question here comes down to also how favorable a deal vegas maybe (laughs) vegas like you know what i mean like like, are there places potentially that even he himself might be like you know what vancouver might be a bit of a project next couple years and it's fair to say let's say for instance Boudreaux comes in this year. He plays a lot of cards. He's done a great job playing those cards. But you've, used, you've played a lot of cards in a short period of time trying to get this team back into the playoff race, right? And now it is what it is. And next year might be a bit of a, okay, sideways year. How much of that message are you wasting on this year and then next year and then trying to get better beyond that? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a sense that the timelines for that type of coach doesn't match up all of a sudden? 
I think that's a fair question. Right? And, and this is something they're going to have to assess, right? But Boudreaux himself, too, might – is there – would there be a consideration for him, let's say this offseason – Toronto opens up. Explore something else. Vegas opens up. And those are teams they're trying to win today. Like, next two or three years, we're all They want the cup right now. Right now. Maybe there is a a situation that if it doesn't work here, there's a mutual beneficial, okay, parting of ways this summer where he goes and latches on to a contender and Vancouver goes well elsewhere. I mean, to me, that that seems like a plausible scenario that that could unfold. He, I I assume, knew that there was the potential. He wanted to get his name back in the mix and that this opportunity in Vancouver short term was one that he was excited to explore. Yeah. And it wasn't entirely, I don't think. I think it's fair to say it wasn't entirely because he wanted to buy real estate in Vancouver uh, in December and and commit himself long term here. I think if the the right circumstance and and that he had the commitment from management and he has built a relationship with the the star players on this team, that he would be happy to do that. I mean, uh, I don't think that there's a coach out there that wouldn't. But it is going to be really interesting to see if just exactly how that lines up mm-hmm. with what he would like to do uh, and, and what management wants to get out uh, of this situation and, and their their vision for, for what the head coach does. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's interesting, though, because we talked to Donnie Taylor about this briefly yesterday and asked him how many coaches have had this much adulation and fan coming into a job, especially early on with the record they've had and how the fan base reacts. And he mentioned there's been a couple of situations. Mark Crawford, when he came over from the, the Colorado Avalanche, for instance, they had just won a cup. And there had been other instances in the past where the Canucks had coaches come into fanfare and, and, and stuff like that. But the the degree of which he is beloved by the fan base, mm-hmm. and I wonder the degree of which he is beloved by people within the organization, even like ownership. I mean, they're the ones who hired him. Like right. Francesco Aquilini is the person who hired Bruce Boudreaux, right? And Rutherford, yeah, made, you know, making make house calls, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Hey, and Boudreaux's the. Uh, I mean, Rutherford signed off on it. Right, but it was very much Francesco. Hey, it was like I like this guy. What, what, what do you think? Right. So there are people that love him in this in this market, and that includes uh, probably ownership as well. Right. So that's the only thing. I mean, even though they're not making the playoffs, but it could come as a shock if there's a parting of ways. You know what I mean? Like I, I think that as much as we we see that it could be a real re- reality, I think a lot of fans would be very upset and shocked and wouldn't understand why this guy who had so much success and is so beloved and has been a good coach in the NHL, all of a sudden didn't last beyond you know three quarters of a season. The flip side, though, and you see this in sports a lot, is that kind of happy marriage, shotgun wedding, and things go yeah. really well right away. Sat, you're a, a fan of Chelsea Football Club. Oh, and yes. They are a, a, a team that's had a number of managers. And oh, yeah. often manager will come in late in the season and they'll go on a run and they'll win the Champions League or they'll Roberto make the Champions League. And then they commit yeah. to that person. Now, Bruce Boudreaux has an extensive resume beyond his time in Vancouver. Yeah. It's not like he's just come up from the AHL and the team's done well. There's a body of work that you can evaluate there. Uh, and he's a fan favorite. I mean, like how many coaches come in and get a, you know a chant for them the moment that they arrive? It doesn't happen very often. But like, So I'll ask you. What's the one, if you were in the Canucks shoes, if you're in Patrick Alvin's shoes and Jim Rutherford's shoes, you're hanging out in their office, what's the one trepidation that you would have about Bruce Boudreaux's future as the coach of the Canucks? 
just what I mentioned as far as the timelines. Right, because I do think the the message, and especially with how Boudreaux is, he himself has said, you know, I go in somewhere and it usually lasts three to four years, and then usually that's it. Like he joked about it. And you look at his mo; that's what it's been. And it's hard for which coaches. is realistic. It's realistic, and, he, and he's real about it, right? So it's like if you already use one year here, and you think you're using next year, and you really think that your time to win is year three and four. Does it make more sense for you to just make that switch now? Like that would be my only consideration, right? And listen, the people that work in the organization and have the acumen they do are far better equipped at assessing that question, right? And making that type of determination. But that would be my only question. And I'm somebody here saying I would bring Bruce back because I think that to some degree is overthinking things. When you have a guy that's working, it's okay to keep him. And even if even if you change, make that change in three years, hey, that's life. Yeah, coaches change, get fired. They happen. And I think if you always and if you have a front office and if you have a new organizational culture being set in and a standard that creates a program, then the coach can become replaceable, right? But I think that he would with up, uphold a lot of those standards. The other question is something that we can't assess. It comes down to philosophical lines within the organization, the new front office, how they think and how they want to see that work out, right? And that's, that's the big determination. A lot of good reaction coming in on our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. Uh, this one unsigns. Why would it not be Bruce, guys? He squeezed water out of a stone with some of this roster and especially defense. They need to extend him. Uh, Tyler from the island, remember last year when you guys were all freaking out that Green wasn't signed yet. How did that work out? That is Tyler from the island. Um, well, I mean, Green didn't have a contract <laughs> for, for the, this upcoming season. I mean, uh, yes, if, if like if Travis Green wasn't signed, and, and we know how it ultimately played out with him getting an extension, kind of the last minute, but they were going to have to figure something else out with the coach. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was just the reality. Jeffro says, if you go by Bruce's tenure so far, he's earned another year. However, after hearing Patrick Alvin's answer regarding Bruce's future last week, I'm not so sure. Because very much so, it's very much so a consideration still, right? Like, it's still an evaluation going on. And I see people texting in and saying, book it, Paul Maurice is going to be the next guy that comes in because of the relationship with Rutherford in the past. And I want to get this one thought in from Rager. I think this core could really use a coach like Boudreaux who can teach them how to win and act like a winning team. This isn't the same as towards saying the Sidian era uh, team that needs to learn how to win when they already knew how to. These young guys don't know how, how to yet, and Boudreaux could get them there. And I think... Torts talked about a team that knew how to win that became stale versus a team that is trying to figure out how to win. And that's a different distinction about where teams are at. And I think this team very much needs to mature still and learn that. The question comes down to how many of those players are capable of doing so. And we're, we are going to do something coming up a bit later um, on the show coming up uh, in the next hour, stock up and stock down. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that conversation really ties in to Boudreaux's tenure as well. A lot lot of guys whose play went up and play kind of went down and how guys kind of fit in. And I think if Boudreaux is indeed the guy coming back, I think there are some interesting questions also to be asked about, okay, so who on this roster fits with Boudreaux, right? And that's the other part of this consideration, I bet, for management. They look at this roster and saying, okay, practically speaking, this is who we want to be, but this is who we can be. Yes. And And also what what we have presented to us yes by all indications uh the management group in this organization would want to retain jt miller let's say it gets to the offseason and uh, the new york rangers lose early in the playoffs and they go you know what we this is the kind of guy that we need uh to solidify our center depth and give ourselves another top line center and we're we're finally willing to move one of the d-men prospects 
we've also heard what Bruce Boudreaux had to say about JT Miller, right? Like uh, his view may change if yeah. players like that start to to get moved. And that's why we're we're at a fascinating place with this team. We know kind of the easy way uh, for them forward, clearing cap space, giving some younger players opportunities, finding fits for their top players and making those decisions. But there is that wild card of being presented with a different avenue forward. And that, I believe, would change um, the feeling of what kind of coach. Uh, and to your point, added, it's more about uh, the timeline of the coach less than uh, or more so than the the, the quality of the coach, um, the kind of systems that they want to play that that, you know, the identity that they want for the team. It would be it would be closer to um, you know, coaches age and, and the kind of project uh, with the program that they're willing to take on. Well, absolutely. Right. And as far as players on this team, too, I think you look at the top end guys. Pedersen, he works under Boudreaux, right? Miller clearly works under Boudreaux. Hughes clearly works under Boudreaux. Bo Horvat clearly works under Boudreaux with how many minutes he plays and the roles that he's been playing under this coach too, right? Besser plays a lot of the minutes, but does and I think that in theory he fits with the coach. Does Connor Garland? I'm not sure. Right. Right? Now, let's say the organization itself, though, isn't sure on Garland, but likes a world where they can keep Connor Garland and some other players like him, or even Niels Hoaglander, for instance. Yeah, those are the two guys that stick out because of um, the limited role that they can play. And, and I don't mean that they're limited as players. I'm talking that um, they're wingers. And right. they're probably middle six wingers. And once you get to that point in the roster, you're thinking a little bit more about what else is this player bringing, you know, right. Are they going to be, in, in Hoaglander's case, can he be a penalty killer? Uh, you know, I don't think you're going to imagine Connor Garland becoming an epic penalty killer, but like that's with him, okay, can he be a really good piece of a, of a second power play unit? You have to ask those questions because they're not the top line guys where it's Elise right. Pedersen and, and JT Miller. This is, if, if those guys are playing for your team, they're playing a lot of minutes, they're on the first power play unit, um, they can have... Uh, PK role uh, that that's generally coach's discretion with the, the top end players. You're not asking the same sort of minutia questions about the kind of players and Hoaglander and Garland pop out for those reasons, because you got to find the fit yeah. in the lineup and the fit with the coach. Is the coach going to play them to, to their strengths? And if not, then you start making decisions about who replaces them because you, you need players of a certain caliber at that, at that point in the lineup. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely, right? And uh, it is going to be fascinating to see how it all unfolds with head coach Bruce Boudreaux, who has been an absolute hit in this market, getting the most out of this team. Just somebody mentioning. He's squeezing water out of a stone. That's a good way of putting uh, what this team was like before he came in and, and what good of a jo- what job he's done with this franchise ever since taking over as the head coach. Coming up a bit later, we will do a bit of a stock up and stop, stock down, but what but, but why we what we mean by that more than anything is which player has had his stock improve the most this season and which player has had his stock fall the most this season for your Vancouver Canucks that's coming up next hour on Canucks Central but up next is Harmon Dial from the Athletic right here on the Home of Your Canucks Sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650. Sat and Izzy 
Connect Central brought to you by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Harmon Dial is coming up from The Athletic in a matter of moments. My man Izzy's stomping grounds, The Athletic. So we'll delve into your Vancouver Canucks, Bruce Boudreaux who uh, was asked a question about his desire to remain in Vancouver because his contract doesn't really be, uh, extend beyond next season. And he addressed that by saying, I like Vancouver, I like coaching. I think that should tell you <laughs> oh, 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 what, what, that, what that means <laughs> about my desire to remain here in Vancouver. So we know the coach, at least what he's saying publicly, is he'd like to be here. Yeah, right. I mean, it's two things. I think he's um, grateful for the opportunity mm-hmm. at that point and understanding that uh, it was it was a good opportunity for him to get back uh, with a, a roster that would probably suit his strengths as a coach and get his, get his name back in the mix, put himself back in the conversation to be an NHL coach, whether that's here in Vancouver or whether he could go somewhere else mm-hmm. where they're maybe a little bit closer to competing or... All of those things, and he looks at it as, I'd love to coach here long-term because um, it's a great fan base, and they have some star players that I can work with. I could I could see myself here for four or five years yeah. and try to do uh, what he did with Washington, Anaheim, and Minnesota, but then change the ending and, and win a championship, the one thing that's really eluded him uh, as the NHL head coach. Well, I mean, is that the one thing that might keep him from the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, because you look at his winning record, he might still get in in the Hockey Hall of Fame because of how much he's won, but you add a Stanley Cup victory into it, then all of a sudden that conversation changes for his legacy as well. Absolutely, yeah. Right. It, like, it, it, it's pretty it's pretty amazing what a championship does to, to someone's perception. Yeah, no question about that. All right, uh, let's welcome in our good friend Harmon Dial from The Athletic into the conversation here on Canuck Central. Harm, what's happening, man? How are you feeling today? Nothing much, guys. Uh, how are you? I know, we're just chilling, talking Canucks, talking about Bruce Boudreaux. I think we've, we've, we've all come to love Bruce Boudreaux. And just from the media angle, a, a guy that's as honest as he is and you know always gives you something to think about or chew on during his media availabilities and, and his overall mannerisms, massive hit with us. But as far as truly judging the work he's done in Vancouver, I mean, it's, it's hard not to give him an A or an A+, plus, isn't it? Absolutely. You look at uh, since he's taken over, the Canucks have essentially played um, 670 hockey, I think, in terms of point percentage going into um, before last night's loss. They were top 10 in the NHL, right uh, right at 10th place in uh, point percentage standings-wise uh, since Boudreaux took over. And when you consider where the team was at before, uh, before those first, uh, uh, before the, during the first 25 games when Boudreaux hadn't, uh, taken over and you know the the stark contrast um the immediate bump and, and how the team's been able to carry that moving forward um the fact that we were even talking about meaningful games this deep in march the on-ice results speak for themselves and then obviously uh in terms of your top players i think he's been able to extract a lot more i think the special teams in particular both the power play and the penalty kill um, we're really able to uh, to stabilize, and, and you had some of your top players start to produce uh, a little bit more as well. And uh, further down the lineup, you look at uh, before Mott was traded and, and before Highmore was sidelined, the development of sort of that trio with uh, Lamico, Mott, and, and Highmore being a fixture, and the work that he was kind of able to do there. And I just think when I look at this roster, um, how little Boudreaux had to work with, how 
deep a hole the Canucks had kind of dug themselves in, and even where they would have been at in terms of their belief and confidence um, when Boudreaux took over and how um, low and down the team was, uh, for him to be able to pick them back up as drastically as he was able to, I, it, like you said, it's hard not to grade it as anything but uh, an A and or, or an A plus. Harm, when you look at uh, what Boudreaux has been able to accomplish uh, with this team and, and uh, some of the changes that he's made to the lineup and player deployment and, and, and some of the, the role shifts that we've seen, what stands to you? Like if, if Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin went to you and, and asked you to make the case and pick one thing, like what's the one thing that you've seen from Bruce Boudreaux's decisions or from his demeanor uh, or from the way that he's tried to instill uh, an identity and a culture with this team? What's the one thing that you would say um, that we have seen from him with the Canucks this season um, is the best reason why the Canucks should move forward with him as their coach? I think the thing that sticks out about Boudreaux just overall is it's not as if he's this um, tactical mastermind. It's not as if he um, is, is the type of coach that's going to beat you with offensive zone, set, set uh, draw, schemes, and things of that nature. The thing that stands out with Boudreaux is just what he's done overall in – uh, empowering some of the top players and instilling confidence in them. And, and, and there are a couple things that I think fall into that category. Number one was Boudreaux coming in and looking at the identity, the identity of the team. And through the first 25 games, the club had kind of been playing a more conservative style. And I don't think that that's the sort of game that suited this Canucks roster. And, and Boudreaux opened it up. And that's the sort of style that I think is fun and exciting for players to uh, play within. And it certainly played more towards the Canucks' uh, strengths. So I think that, for starters, is something that um, if you're a player in that locker room, it's just a lot more fun to play. Uh, it feels like you're playing more to win rather than playing not to lose. And then the other thing in terms of empowering the, uh, empower, empowering the top players was you look at the penalty kill, what Boudreaux has been able to do in experimenting with Lee's Patterson and Quinn Hughes on the PK, um, and not only how both those guys have excelled uh, early on, but that level of, I think, confidence um, for a coach to come in and, and, and show that faith um, and look at both of those guys as more than just offensive pieces, um, that's something that would surely have motivated Pedersen and Hughes. And I, and I, I remember when Hughes was asked about that uh, first, it, by way back in, in December, he said that's he, he said that's the sort of thing where, and, and he was actually asked about Patterson getting the shot on the PK. Um, Hughes was essentially just like that sort of faith and that sort of confidence and opportunity mm-hmm. is the type of thing that makes guys want to drive through a wall for your coach. And I think, so when you look at Boudreaux as a whole, it's, it's not as if he's the type of coach that is going to outfox the other team in terms of matchups or um, specific deployment. I think what Boudreaux does really well is he can read a room and he can understand how to prop guys up, um, how to how to make them feel good about themselves, and yet also be able to kind of hold them accountable. And, and I think that's where he's he's more a, a mastermind of managing the vibes in a locker room and um, kind of being able to extract the most out of players uh, that way, and then and then kind of getting them to be able to believe. And I think that's what we saw from this team as they were kind of able to turn the page from our horrific first 25 games um, and start to build some confidence as they started winning. 
Yeah, and you know that ability to find internal solutions, I think, is something that plays to his favor more than anything. I think the question, however, on any reason why they wouldn't bring him back, to me, the only question mark would be that they feel like he's the type of coach that you know he himself has kind of joked about has a three to four year lifespan where he goes somewhere and that it may not align where, where this team is going to be in three to four years, considering what happened this year and what happened, might happen next season. Is that the only consideration that would play a part into him not coming back? Or do you think that there is something else that could come into play as far as the evaluation process and fit as far as him coming back or not? Yeah. I think the timeline is definitely the big one because um, I think kind of like you mentioned, Boudreaux's obviously up there in age too. And, and every coach only has so many years in terms of a shelf life. So you have to kind of think about, do we potentially go younger? And, 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 you know, that's one consideration. Another consideration would be, um, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a, a knock on him. I'm just saying this is something that needs to be part of your uh, evaluation process is you're going to have to think about some of the younger players that are going to, um, go, going to need to be developed and not just the top end guys necessarily, but the likes of Niels Hoagland and the likes of the silly pod Coles. And then um, as uh, Jack Rathbone comes up in the system, you're also going to have to kind of think about um, maybe look, look at Boudreaux's track record and, and ask yourself as a management group, um, do we have confidence um, in, uh, in Boudreaux's ability to develop these guys? Because um, it's no secret that I think, for someone like Niels Hoaglander, he has kind of taken a step back um, since, I think, the coaching change because he started the season pretty strong as one of their more dynamic forwards, and he's obviously lost uh, a bit of his confidence, and a lot of it is his individual play. Um, but So that's where, again, as a management group, you're going to have to not just consider the winning side of it, but if this is a multi-year retool process, um, then it's going to be essential that the Canucks maximize the potential of the likes of Hoaglander and Pod Coles, and then development becomes a, a really big priority as well, not just winning. Looking at, uh, at what Bruce has done here, Harm, um, a lot of it for him, based on his reputation, is uh, the play up front, the forwards. And you look at the, the players that he's coached before Vancouver. He's coached some incredible offensive players. He comes to Vancouver. Um, some of them are young, but he's got you know a lot of, of, of strong offensive options. Uh, the defense is the, the, the talking point that is uh, maybe a bit more interesting because um, – whether or not Boudreaux is the, the, the driving force, as you mentioned, um, he, he's definitely the culture setter and getting players to buy into a standard and, and setting the kind of style of play that he'd like to see from the group as a whole. But the defense, Brad Shaw gets a lot of credit. There's conversation about just how much of an impact Boudreaux has on the defensemen. When you, when you evaluate Boudreaux as a coach, how much does the play from the blue line impact um, your ultimate view of, of what he can do behind the Canucks bench? Yeah, I think overall, when I look at defensemen, there are very few coaches around, I think the NHL where I look at and go, that coach can, that coach can have a profound impact on, um, on maximizing what you can get from, from the blue line. I mean, it's no secret that this back end, I think isn't, is kind of under, um, under-talented and overpaid. And I think it, it's hard to expect anyone, any coach, to kind of be able to come in and um, be able to all of, all of a sudden 
turn it into a top 10 uh, blue line. I think thus far, if I look at the blue line's results overall since Boudreaux has taken over, I think given the personnel that the back end has fared decently well, I think when you look at, for instance, OEL and, and, and Myers as a shutdown pair, um, they had a bit of a rough patch maybe over the last few weeks. But again, I think over the last handful of games, they've started to turn things around. And when you look at their overall body of work since Boudreaux took over, I think um, in Myers' case especially, they've kind of played uh, a little bit above their uh, ability level. And then you also look at um, a player like Luke Shen, who I think I, I think in Shen's case, he's... Um, he's been excellent value, and, and that kind of extends before Boudreau even took over, but I look at him as a player that's played above his ability level. Um, I think Brad Hunt, obviously there's a, a familiarity level with him, uh, and Boudreau, I thought his game started to uh, turn the corner um, over the last uh, two, three months, and he's been a stabilizing force on the third pair. So when I look at the back end as a whole relative to the level of, of talent that's on there, I think it's performed fairly well, and so from there, I think that's a probably check for, for Boudreaux as, uh, as well. But like I said earlier, I, I always look at defensemen and um, I don't know that there's a whole lot um, you can do, uh, especially with the veteran group, right? There isn't a lot of uh, young guys on, on this defense that you necessarily need to groom and, and develop, right? Even a player like Quinn Hughes. I like the fact that Boudreaux, from a development standpoint with Hughes, has, has given him the PK opportunity. But there isn't a. I, it's a pretty veteran group on the back end right now for Vancouver, and mm-hmm. I just don't think there's a lot of impact you know a coach can have specifically just on the blue lines performance. Yeah, and when I look at what this team is going to do, and they've mentioned themselves that yeah, the blue line's not that bad as far as what the conversation around it is, but obviously an area with their that they're trying to improve. Now, one player they did bring in on the blue line was Travis Dermott, and it's only been a handful of games so far, and he's very much played you know somewhat of a sheltered third pair role alongside Brad Hunt so far. But what are the early returns that you're seeing, not only with your eyes, but also what some of the numbers are telling us about his ten years so far. Yeah, it's it's perfect timing. You asked me. I've actually been going back and watching every five and five shift he's had since um, he joined the team, and I think the the th- I've been overall impressed with with the body of work. Um, obviously, as you kind of mentioned, in a more reserved third pair role. But um, the thing I like most about Dermot's game is he has the ability on defensive zone retrievals to cleanly move pucks. Um, make those little five to ten foot plays that relieve pressure. Um, when he has a four, four checker right on his back, um, he can bump, make a little bump plays. Where if he's on the sideboards or, or on the end boards, he can make the he, he can do like a little shake and bake or, or get to that puck first and make that little backhand pass uh, to the middle of the ice to a winger or to a centerman who can then help lead uh, an exit. And those little passes tend to go unnoticed. But they're so important in terms of being able to, as a five-man unit, transition up the ice, spend less time in your defensive zone. And that's kind of what you're seeing um, in the numbers so far is uh, Dermott's five and five shots and chance, um, chances against numbers are uh, among Canucks blue liners in, the, in these five games um, the best. And again, sheltered, sheltered role. We, we obviously, need, obviously need to throw that caveat out there, but... Um, I think that's a reflection of how little time the Canucks have spent in their own end because of how well uh, Dermott um, uses his edge work and his agility 
to uh, to sort of elude four checkers, and that's a trait that I think this Canucks blue line um, definitely needs more of. Uh, I've sort of thought about that going back to um, even the Vegas series in the bubble, where one of the biggest issues the Canucks had was their defensemen just couldn't beat um, the pace and the size of uh, Vegas's uh, forwards up front. Um, and Dermott is a sort of player who, against bottom uh, bottom of the lineup competition, can do that really well. And uh, I also like the fact that he's obviously not the biggest guy, but he's not afraid. He's a little bit thicker. He's around, I think, 200 pounds. And so he's also not afraid to initiate contact um, in, in loose puck battles. And I've liked the solidity that he's shown in uh, in those areas. Now, obviously, in terms of uh, reasons why he maybe hadn't flourished as a top four defenseman in Toronto, you are you do sort of see little things that um, – that uh, stick out to you in, in that respect, even here in Vancouver, where um, you do occasionally see the the turnover in a, in a compromising spot. Or I think the biggest thing that stands out is um, with his reads away from the puck, sometimes he is half a second slow to, let's say, um, when he's defending the rush, um, sort of shift over to the middle of the ice and, and, and maybe his gap is uh, a little bit loose uh, on the occasional, uh, on the occasional, uh, opponent's uh, counterattack but uh overall i think you really can't ask for anything more out of a bottom pair defenseman and i think the only question now is as he gets his feet under uh himself a little bit more and, and potentially with, with someone like Tucker pullman who could be more of a, a stay-at-home presence uh can he sort of with more confidence show um show more tra- more traits and uh, maybe down the stretch here um, even show that uh, he's someone that could potentially be trusted up the lineup. And, and, and that's what I'm going to be curious to see with Dermot is, could he be a Troy Stetcher-like piece for you in that? Ideally, you want him on a bottom pair, but when injuries strike, can you trust him and say a second pair role to at least get the job done? And um, I think that's what I'm kind of going to be keeping an eye on uh, with for Dermot. Okay, then, Harm, let's run through this hypothetical. In the offseason, the Canucks are able to move off Tyler Myers' contract. We know that Dermott, uh, one of the advantages is that he can play both sides, even though he's a lefty. What would your feelings be if uh, maybe it's not plan A, but if there is uh, the Canucks are in position to, to go into next season with Travis Dermott playing next to Oliver ekman Larson? Well, it depends on what your ambition level is for next season. Because if it's to make the playoffs, then I think I'm. I for as much as I've liked Dermot's game so far, um, I do still have concerns with how he reads the play defensively. And there are um, you know certain situations where he'll be a little bit slow to react on um, on a rush, but it won't matter because it's a bottom of the lineup player. Right. Um, versus if you're in, say, a role with OEL, maybe you're playing matchup minutes and that all of a sudden could be a, a Nathan McKinnon or, or a Connor McDavid or, or or a Johnny Gaudreau, right? And so those are the differences and that's a challenge of playing up the lineup. So I think I'd need to see more from Dermot than I've seen so far to be confident. But the equation changes if you look at next season and uh, let's say there's a scenario where the Canucks are looking to potentially, let's say, move on from a JT Miller or... or really look to um, take, a, take a retool and making the playoffs isn't the biggest priority for next season, then in that sort of situation, I don't mind him as a placeholder at all um, in that role. But uh, again, if, you're try- if, you, if the goal, if the ambition is we need to make the playoffs for whatever reason, which I don't think that should be the ambition anyway. I think 
we've seen with this team that you're going to need to take a step back in order to take two steps forward mm-hmm. forward if you really want to be a legit contender. Um, so it kind of depends on your ambition level is, is, is what I'd say for next season. Yeah. And I think it's very clear. I mean, you know, we do, you don't, you don't, you don't need to be an insider to say they're going to be taking a bit of a step back because they've been saying that all along the way, ever since Rutherford was hired and an Alvin, they've been saying, yeah, we're, we're probably going to have to make some tough decisions and take some short term pain in order to take that leap forward. That might be something we have to do, which is kind of telling you that's what they're going to be looking to do now. Now, what I also think was interesting by what you mentioned, it's so easy to get infatuated with guys, too, that play sheltered third pair minutes and then assume they can just step into top four role and play. And like you mentioned, that's not an easy thing to do. How often do we see guys uh, that were here playing those minutes and once they get elevated, they get caved in? And one of the things with Tyler Myers, and again, he's had a better year this year, and overall he's kind of a replacement-level player that can play top four minutes, but that's the value he has, right? Like He's a guy that you can play in the top four, and on the grand scale gives you break-even production when you factor all things together, right? So how hard is it to find somebody that can do that or better and not pay them a lot of money? Like, how hard is that to find? It's difficult. I, I always say that it, that from my perspective, it's a lot easier to find um, middle, six, uh, middle six wingers in terms of, in terms of uh, efficiently out, uh, out in the market um, than it is uh, top four defensemen. It, it just feels like, especially if you're talking about somebody on the right side, um, that's uh, almost every NHL team's, uh, team's need. And um, there are, I think, a lot more examples of sort of middle six forwards that come out of nowhere as opposed to, like, how many top four defensemen are there that um, if you look at every season, you look at breakout, breakout guys, um, how many of them kind of emerge? And, and, it's, and it's tough, but they are out there, right? Um, uh, Florida's obviously shown it in terms of how they revitalized, say, Gustav Forsling. And, and although I, I think that's a bit of a special case uh, because of how good that team is, um, I think New Jersey uh, was able to do it this season with uh, Jonas Siegenthaler. Um, they got him from Washington for cheap, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's been their top pair uh, shutdown guy, and he's done a pretty good job at it. But there aren't many examples of that. It's I think very difficult to be able to um, sort of find these guys um, as diamonds in the rough, and, and that's why I didn't mind the uh, roll of the dice on Dermot because he's 25, and in all likelihood, he's a bottom pair guy, but there's still the odd chance, uh, maybe say like a 10 to 15% probability that maybe he's a little bit more than that. Maybe he could be uh, a number four guy for you um, if everything sort of hits. And when you look at the cost being a third round pick, um, I don't mind that uh, at all because there was a time um, when Dermot was 22, uh, 23, where a lot of Leafs fans looked at uh, the way he was able to play um, and crush bottom pair minutes and thought, hey, this guy should be uh, a future top uh, top four guy for us. And it's funny because I think Dermot in particular fits with a class of players um, where it's like this certain archetype of this athletic puck-moving defenseman who looks great analytically in a third-pair role, and you just never know how, how they're going to fare in top four minutes. Um, until you actually deploy them in that role, because there's kind of two groups that these players fall into. Group one is the sort of like Schmidt, for instance, is is I think a classic example, or Mackenzie Weger, where both guys 
elite zone exit results in bottom pair roles. Schmidt obviously back then with Washington. Um, and then they were able to take that next step. But then you have the second group of guys where it's like the Colin Millers. It's um, the Vince Dunn's who did the same thing in bottom pair minutes who looked the exact same uh, on the surface as say Nate Schmidt or uh, Mackenzie Rieger earlier in their careers. And yet when you play them in top four minutes, their game kind of um, falls, uh, falls apart a little bit. And Dermott so far in his career, you know, looks like he's much closer to being the bottom pair type guy, but that's where I don't mind. Even though, even if there is say a 10 to 15% probability that he is a bit more just because it's so hard to be able to find um, those uh, top four guys that, are cheap and, and easy to acquire. No, absolutely. Now, one thing that's not difficult is you making friends when you go on the road. So when you go to Vegas, uh, be careful not to make too many friends <laughs> on Monday. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Harm. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Harm. Uh, that's Harmon Dial from The Athletic Mixture. It's quite the road trip for the beat. Yeah. For the young beat writer. Not too bad, hey? I mean, New York and also Vegas, not a bad 2022 so far for Harmon Dial. Very nice. Yes, very nice. Good for him. I mean, no. he's been to Vegas before. He did the uh, the earlier trip, yeah. that horrible nightmare road trip for the Canucks, uh, that Colorado-Vegas-Anaheim um, trip mm-hmm. that uh, that he went through. And so he's he's an experienced guy. It's, you know, it's like going to be his second time at the blackjack table. I know. He's going to crush it. Harm, harm on the loose in Vegas. That'll be good times. All right. Uh, great stuff as always here on Canucks Central. It is Satyar Shot with Israel Fair. On the other side... Which Canuck player has had his stock rise the most this season as a member of the team? And which Canuck has had his stock fall the most so far this season? Get your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. And also Sam Constantino is going to be joining us coming up at 5 as well. More on Canuck Central right here on the home of your Canuck, Sportsnet 650.